Well, it's bad enough that I can't sing. I can't even announce the singing. God calls the weak in the bass, I guess. Here I am, front and center. I think most of you, both here and uh, out over the telephone, have heard the last several sermons uh, in which I'm trying to show the focus of what comes next in the Church of God. Uh, That song was very appropriate both for the Feast of Tabernacles and appropriate for what is just ahead for God's Church, at least those who will be faithful to God, which it appears will only be about 10%. He's keeping a tithe for himself. The rest are going into the tribulation. Some will repent there. Zechariah shows about 30%. And they may even have to die, but be tried in tribulation. I think we've all heard the series on the minor prophets in which God lays out what would happen, and I think that it is quite possible, and I think was able to show the parallels there between the history in the end time of the end time church and of physical Israel, and that what has befallen and is befalling the church, the spewing out from God's mouth, the scattering, is something then that would happen shortly thereafter to the nation. So you see this parallel track with the church a little ahead and the nation coming behind. The destruction of the church has gone on now for some at least 15 years, maybe 20 or more really, since Herbert Armstrong died and the doctrine began to take a dive before the actual scattering of the numbers occurred. But certainly truth was being scattered before people were being scattered. It has not gotten better. It's gotten worse, and even though it might appear in some respects we're kind of at rock bottom, we still haven't come upon Zechariah 11 as yet, in which three major trees or three major uh, ministries in the church must yet fall, be cut down. Three trees and three shepherds, both symbolic of churches. So the destruction is not yet quite complete, and must get even worse. Meanwhile, I think that it's becoming apparent that that analysis is correct, because even now, today, we're beginning to see the real cracking of the American economy, the American way of life, and it does not appear this time that it is a little recession we're going to that we will come out of and go on for another 10 or 12 or 15 years, but it appears this time with the dynamics that are in place, that it is going to come completely apart and go clear to the ground. And then an invasion will occur. We will be divided into four pieces with four different governors in the now ascending New World Order. Even yet today, I checked the news just before I came over, and the gold has gone up about $25 today alone. And the dollar continues to weaken against other currencies, And pretty soon our dollars will be virtually worthless. Oil peaked at $92 yesterday. I don't know what it's going to do today. A new high. And they're saying very shortly we'll have $100 oil, which means that we will be headed toward $4 gas very soon. And even higher as this continues to happen. 
One of the big investment companies announced yesterday in a public announcement that they are getting rid of all their dollars and they have billions in money they take care of for other people, selling all of them and buying euros. There is a landslide starting in which people are getting rid of dollars. Some countries are doing it, albeit more slowly, trying to cut the losses and not cause it to crash completely while they, in time, get out of it. But there comes a point where it snowballs and they're going to want to get out completely, which is going to mean that the dollar becomes worth even less. It has not been many years ago that when you travel between uh, the lower 48 and Alaska, that the Canadian dollar was worth about 60 cents. So when you cross the border into Canada, boy, you could spend left and right, and your money wouldn't seem to go a lot further. As of, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, the Canadian dollar today is worth more than the American dollar by about three cents, but it'll get worse. When I was traveling in Europe about 10 years ago, the euro had just come out, and I think you could buy it then for around 80 cents. I came home and I told people, if you really want to make some money, buy euros now, because we knew prophecy knew it was going to go up. So from 80 cents, now, today, it takes about $1.43 to buy a euro. So from 80 cents to $1.43, and it's getting worse day by day. So it would appear <coughs> that... The story God laid out throughout the prophecies is indeed what we are seeing before our very eyes. It is important that each and every one of us understand very deeply and very firmly what God is doing next. I think it has stood us in good stead to understand what God was doing with the church. It has given us a leg up and an opportunity to begin repenting now and changing now withdrawing from the world in Babylon now because most of God's people do not see what is happening, have not understood, and have not had opportunity in that sense to grasp what God is doing and therefore have been moving on as they always were, not growing, not changing, not learning, not moving forward, but just <laughs> sitting in the pew. Say that any way you want, pun intended. Doing nothing. The minister's telling them we've got to preach the gospel around the world, and not much has been accomplished along those lines. Bottom line, without a big review, God is not attempting to preach the gospel around the world as a witness right now. If he were... It would be happening and with power and with might and with results because God is God. And he empowered that to be done so that many might be called from the late 20s through the 80s. And it stopped. And it will not start again until the millennium itself comes. The two witnesses have to preach a warning witness against the world. It will be, and include, I'm sure, a message of repentance, because that's really what everybody needs to do. But it will not be a calling message like Herbert Armstrong's was. That was a friendly message for the most part. God is doing 
things this way, and there's a give way and a get way, and it was not obnoxious in that sense to the world unless you got into doctrine like the Sabbath, the Holy Days, Christmas and Easter, and so on. But it was essentially a friendly message of calling. Come to God. Change certain things and be in God's church. The message to come will be much direr than, than that, and it will have immediate consequences. Repent, or your water will be turned to blood. Repent, or plagues will come on you such as you have never believed or heard of. And if they try to hurt those who bring that message, fire will come out of their mouth and kill them, char them on the spot. It will not be a friendly witness. It will not be a calling witness. It will be a final warning with implications and with immediate disaster. Because God will show that he is God. Meantime, the beast and the false prophet will be doing wondrous things and have the whole world worshiping at their feet with fire coming down from heaven to offset what God is doing through his. So they will be shouted down. As dire as that message will be, will be ignored because the new world order will have an antichrist, a false Jesus, probably will go by the name Jesus. And that is coming very shortly now because we're not talking about something that is going to happen soon to our nation. We are in the middle of it. It hasn't all showed up. Houses in many states have dropped to half their value in the last few months. It's getting worse and worse day by day. So what those minor prophets and the major prophets laid out is now beginning to happen to our country, and there's no saving it now. It's downhill the rest of the way. So, what is God doing next? That is something we need to firmly grasp and understand so that we can be a part of it. And the scriptures make it very clear. In going through the Minor Prophet series, starting with Hosea, it talks about the horrible conditions, the sinfulness of this nation and the world, but it's specifically aimed more at Israel and Judah. It goes back and forth between the two. Hosea, Joel, Amos, about how the day of the Lord is going to come, about how people had better straighten up because they're going to see their God face to face. God is going to begin to create implications of horror. It goes through some pretty bad times. And then when you get to Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah, it begins to change because God tells his people to escape from this coming destruction that they are to gather themselves before the economy crashes. And we are seeing the beginnings of that crash right now. It has leaned outward like a wall for a good long while, and now she's starting to come down fast, as Isaiah says. Zephaniah, God says, chapter 3, he's going to preserve a small, humble, meek people for himself, and that they will work that they will have a project to do, and that they are not to fear, but to be strong, of good courage, and to work. 
Right after that, the book of Haggai comes along and says, why are you doing what you're doing? Everything you earn goes into a pocket with holes. And now you're going to see the Federal Reserve start cranking out money just as fast as the printing presses will roll to try to head off what's happening at the same time they know that they ultimately intend to crash it. So inflation is going to hit us hard with the price of energy going up. They say heating oil will rise 28% this year, and it may go higher than that. Gasoline to get to work will go up commensurately. Food will go up and skyrocket in price because it's costing more to produce it, more to truck it, more to provide it through the stores. Their costs are going up as minimum wage goes up. And all these costs always go up faster than wages go up. If you don't know that, you're going to learn it soon. So this is what's coming down. But Haggai says, you may live in your nice homes, but he said, my house lies waste. So he begins to give us a picture of what he is going to do next when he says the destruction comes in Zephaniah and he's saving out a small people. That small people then, he tells in the book of Haggai, to build the temple of God. Go to the mountains, bring wood and build a temple. Quit worrying about the inflation and the problems in this world, but get busy doing the work of God. The work of God is not preaching the gospel to the world as a witness. That will be done by the two witnesses and by the example of his people who will be set on a hill as a light to the world. To show the world what can be done. Haggai says that the glory of this latter temple will be compared to that of the former under Herbert Armstrong, and the old men who saw both will say there is no comparison. And finally, in this place he will bring peace, Haggai 2.9. So God is going to begin to work and bring peace among his people, even at the same time the world is evolving into war after war after war, and the destruction of 90%, no more than 90% of the earth's population. He's going to destroy about 90% of physical Israel. But the Gentiles will take it even tougher than that. Because it appears from Daniel that only 100 million people are going to survive out of 6.5 billion. That's far more than 90% destruction. He says that he will raise up Zerubbabel and Joshua the two witnesses, the two olive trees, the two plants mentioned in Zechariah 4 and in Revelation 1 as the two final witnesses against this world. But before they begin that three and a half years of ministry in the tribulation, it says that Jerusalem will be built as towns without walls out in the desert and in the wilderness, that God will be a flame of fire around them, that he will be a covert from the heat. I'm quoting from Zechariah 2 now. He tells his people, that same context, to flee from Babylon, to get away from it. 
And then he says in Isaiah 40 that there will come a voice crying in the wilderness to make a straight, a highway, a way for God, for God's people. And then he shows that God's people are going to be a witness to the world in the next few chapters. Then he shows in chapter 44, the end of it, that there will be a Cyrus who comes along that is not a member of God's church, does not know God, knows of God, but that he will say to Zion, or to Jerusalem, your, the city will be built, and does the temple, your foundation, will be laid. Last verse of chapter 44 of Isaiah. Then it says that this Cyrus will be given the ability to make the straight places plain, that the bars of iron and the bars of brass will be broken by God so that he can see, and that to him will be revealed the hidden treasures of darkness, the hidden things of God. Now there was an original Cyrus the king at the end of the Babylonian captivity when Babylon went down, who took over for the Medes and the Persians, and he released the Jews after roughly 70 years of captivity to go back and build the temple. He sent along all the temple service that Belteshazzar and his people had polluted with their drunken orgy to be re reinstalled in the temple. I believe that the hidden treasures include that temple service, perhaps the Ark of the Covenant, perhaps the original tabernacle, I don't know what all is there, but historical records, a lot of doctrines may be cleared up when those records are found that show the way things really should be. So God has hidden those things, and the world is out there. They have groups going here and there, mostly around Jerusalem and the Middle East, looking for these things, knowing that they should be there, but cannot find them. But God is going to provide a man to whom he will show how to find them. He will do it for the benefit of God's people, Isaiah 45 says, and that even though he doesn't know God himself, God has surnamed him, has changed his name from whatever it was to something different, and that he will be used to show that God is God. All through Ezekiel it says over and over, dozens of times. And then they will know that I am the Lord. God is going to make his mighty arm bare before the whole world in a way that is undeniable. Now I went to the book of Ezra because it gives the historical account of what the prophetic chapters of Isaiah say. And it shows that indeed King Cyrus did call for volunteers to build the temple of God in Jerusalem, 500 miles removed, they thought, from Babylon. Volunteers came. And they began building the temple. They had their problems. It was stopped for a while because of enemies. And then it resumed. But I believe this is the next event that needs to occur in the history and projecting into prophecy of the next year or two or three or four of the Church of God. Now we're all familiar, but this is part of the story, and I want to review it a little bit here. 
He says, Jerusalem shall be builded as towns without walls in Zechariah, and there will be much men and cattle there. So it is an agricultural community. At the end of Zechariah 3, when it's talking about Joshua there, and the seven eyes on the, seven, on the, on the stone, meaning the seven churches of God will put, be placed before Joshua, the stone being Christ, the chief cornerstone, the seven eyes, the angels of the seven churches. So it mentions seven, doesn't it? It also says in Isaiah 41 that God will plant seven trees in the wilderness and in the desert. It says in Isaiah 4 that seven women, typical of churches, will take hold of one man saying we will make our own way, we'll pay, just let us have your name because the church is going to be left destitute, widowed if you will. And they won't have any leadership or place to go. So a remnant of them are going to take hold of the leader God sets in the desert, Zerubbabel, and they will come and take hold. I believe we know then how many towns without walls will be in the desert. Seven. And they will represent both the pluses and the minuses of the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. So everywhere, everything comes up sevens. They can say that in Las Vegas, I suppose. We can say it here. God causes things to come up sevens. I find no other number to put to it. I think when I first began to understand this, I assumed maybe three or four villages. But the more these scriptures come together, it appears that there will be seven of them and that they will represent each of those seven churches of Revelation, because the seven golden candlesticks in the prophetic book of Revelation all exist at the end time. I proved that in a series of articles when I was in the Church of the Great God. They may have come in to end as a historical thing through history, but in, they will definitely be here at the end. All the other churches will see what happens to Thyatira, for instance. And if they had already been in the past, when Thyatira came on the scene, they wouldn't have seen it. Just one of the little inner things that show that. So God is going to put together a remnant, roughly 10% of his people. Isaiah 1.9 says a small tithe. So just under 10%. Ezekiel says to take out 10%, the third, the third, and the third go under the fire. And then he takes a few more hairs out of his apron and throws them in the fire. So a little less than 10%, if you will, are going to respond to God, to his witnesses, and to his people at the end. That's all. Now, I do not believe that God will build those towns without walls and have much men and cattle there, and this be a one or two month project. I mean, what's the purpose? It says uh, at the end of Zechariah 3, talking about Joshua there and what he is doing, that in that day each man will sit under his vine and fig tree. I'm not talking about the millennium here. We're talking about the time when the two witnesses start doing their work. And it becomes very clear in Revelation 11, 1 through 4, that they are to leave out the court of the Gentiles at first, that they are to measure the altar and the temple and the altar, the ministry and those that worship therein. 
Their first job is to the church. Go to Zechariah 4, and it talks about Zerubbabel being introduced, how he laid the foundation of the temple, how before him the straight places would be made plain, the mountains would be knocked down, not by might, not by power, but by God's Spirit, says the Eternal. And then it goes down to show to the angel, or to Zechariah, however that's worded, what this means, because he didn't understand. And God said, these two candlesticks give out the oil to all seven of the candlesticks. There again you have seven coming up. And that they are the sons of oil anointed, and the only other place that anyone is mentioned in that context is Revelation 11 and the witness of the two at the end. So he told Zerubbabel, you laid the foundation, you will finish it. I think that that implies a period of inactivity, a period after the foundation is laid when he will be sidetracked or not move forward, but God says, it's going to happen. That was true historically as we've gone into the book of Ezra, that things came up and there was a cessation of the building for a period of time. So it is in the historical record, which is a pattern for the prophetic story that there would be an interruption before that would be done. But he says the house of the great God will be built. It's the only place it uses that phrase. It uses it in Zephaniah 9, 3, I think, where it mentions the great, the fantastic, the wonderful, uses several superlatives of God, but it doesn't say the great God in those words exactly. It's probably the name of the final temple. Historical record is there. But, when those towns without walls are built, they will have a wall of fire to protect, a covert from the heat to stop the hot desert sun from burning up the crops, and as Isaiah says, it will be the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God. I'll go back for a moment to Isaiah. We haven't read this one in a while. I quote that in Zechariah more. But let's notice this in Isaiah 4. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying... Now, notice the context here. Chapter 3, it talks about the women, which is symbolic of the churches and of the nation as a whole, but first of the church, that because of vanity, because of ego, because of pride, because of dressing to look good instead of be good, that the women will be destroyed. And instead of a sweet smell, a stink will come up. Instead of well-kept hair, baldness. Instead of, of beauty, sackcloth and burning instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty in the war. And that spiritual tribulation has been going on and people have been falling right and left through spiritual war, famine, pestilence, and disease. And there are precious few left who are faithful to the word of God. So it's both to the church spiritually and ultimately to this nation physically because the churches of God are busy trying to look good instead of be good. As I said last night, we like the results of the Spirit, the peace, the joy, the happiness that can come, but we don't like God's methods. We don't want to keep His laws and follow His precepts in order to achieve what it is that we all want. We want to do it our way and come up with the same result, but it will not happen. It can't. In that day, seven women, seven churches, shall take hold of one man. 
That's in regard to the church. Now it will happen that in the physical nation there will be such famine and such disease that they'll look anywhere for someone who can help and give them a name. I think it is really of the church more than anything else. We don't have leadership. We don't have a name. We're all alone out here and destitute. Give us your name. We'll even feed ourselves and clothe ourselves. Give us your name. Because of the name of the church is being destroyed. In that day, in that day, not the millennium, in that time, when seven women are destitute and taking hold of one man. Let's get the time order here. In that day shall the branch of the eternal be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Now Israel is going to then be destroyed, but a few are going to escape, and God is going to bless them as mankind has never been blessed since Adam and Eve were first put in the Garden of Eden. It shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem. Zion and Jerusalem are key words for the church. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. Shall be called holy. God is going to call together a holy people. Even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. Living spiritually and living physically because the nation then is going to be being destroyed physically. When the eternal, it gives us a timing here, this will happen when the eternal shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. God right now is not trying to preach the gospel around the world. He is by the spirit of fire and burning by tribulation, trial, trouble, and difficulty, trying to get the vomit to wake up and turn to him with its whole heart. That's what he's trying to do right now. Not many are listening. Not many read this. Not many apply it to themselves. But we do, don't we? And we understand that we need to become a holy people, to put on our holy garments, to wake up, as Isaiah 49 through 51 and 52 say, and put on our holy garments and quit being walked on by this world and by Babylon, which is tromping all over us. And right after that, he said he's going to turn it around for the church, and things will be beautiful again, and the latter temple will be built. Now notice he's purging the blood of Jerusalem. What does it say there in Zechariah 3 during the time of the two witnesses and their beginnings, not the time of the millennium? It says their sins will be forgiven in one day. God is suddenly going to turn his face to his people when we have sought him with our whole heart and he's going to bless us immeasurably if we're a part of that. He will have purged the sin, the blood guiltiness from us and made us whole and clean in his eyes through his Son. And the Eternal will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night for upon all the glory shall be a defense. If this were the millennium, 
all the governments, the armies of this world that have already been put down. This is talking premillennium. It's talking when you still need a defense. It's talking when life is very dangerous around the world. These prophecies that we all just wrote off as millennial do not show millennial conditions except among those few whom God has pulled out, set aside, stirred to come and build his temple. And that's the message of the book of Haggai. That they were to get together and build a temple. Now God would stir people to come from all over the world. Zechariah 6 says they'll come from afar to build in the temple of God and that this will happen if we will diligently obey. So, when he brings those people and stirs them to come and builds these towns without walls, he is going to be a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For all the glory shall be a defense, a protection. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat. That's ex virtually what it says there in Zechariah 2. Covert from the heat there. <laughs> and for a place of refuge and for a covert from storm and from rain. So conditions are still going to be terrible and God is going to protect his people. What is coming next in God's church is that the destruction will be completed as per Zechariah 11 and those three trees and ministries coming down. But that's on down the road a little bit yet. It's in Zechariah 11. Zechariah 2, 3, and 4 Five and six have to happen first. God has to raise up a leadership. And God has to stir people to come and build a temple. And Osiris has to appear who will turn up the vessels of the temple physically. This is a man, remember, who does not know God. So he is not going to provide the spiritual vessels of the temple, is he? He's a physical man who isn't converted. He won't be used to bring out the spiritual. So it has to be physical. The hidden treasures of darkness, as per Isaiah 45. So, as we see the destruction of the church continuing to wind down, and now we see the big cracks in the financial system of the whole nation and world beginning to come apart, we should anticipate very shortly that God will send a Cyrus to whom he will show the vessels of the temple. He will have the wherewithal, therefore, to build the temple. And he says, God says he's doing this for the benefit of his own people there in the context of Isaiah 45. That's the point. Now, Cyrus, as we have reviewed in the first chapters of Ezra, and maybe I should start back there now, said a decree had been made, and I think Daniel had given that decree to him, told him that Isaiah had written it, the original Cyrus, that he was to build a temple. So Cyrus said, okay, that's me. I'm looking for volunteers to go build a temple. So this Cyrus that we should see soon, if we have not already begun to see, 
is going to have that on his mind. The man we have been in contact with sat right in his chair in his office and said to me, right out of the blue, Jerusalem has to be rebuilt. The foundation of the temple has to be laid right here in Iron County, Utah. He's saying exactly, word for word, without anybody telling him to, without showing him the Scripture, he's saying exactly, word for word, what Isaiah 45, the last verse, says he would say. Now, I don't know that he's that Cyrus, but I've got a pretty good inkling he may be. And I believe that God is going to show him some things that are going to become very, very important in making bare the arm of the Lord. Could be wrong about that. We'll see. But if he ain't the guy, the guy has to show up real soon. Okay? Because this country is coming apart at the seams. Because the church is basically destroyed. And therefore, at that time, and that's the timing of Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah, Cyrus has to show up the witnesses of God have to show up, and then people have to be stirred to come and build towns without walls that God will protect during this havoc that is about to be unleashed with the destruction of this nation and dividing of it into two, four parts. That's all Bible, all going to happen. And it's going to be them against us because the whole world will worship the beast with the exception of a very few, a 10% and less remnant of God's people who will cling to the truth and will not be deceived. This is coming right ahead of us. Ezra and Nehemiah were very closely tied together, and we're going to see it shortly with Haggai and Zechariah, prophets who helped them along with that work. So, the story of Haggai and Zechariah in a prophetic context that is, in the Minor Prophets, is not just a historical record of a temple built long ago, but is projected into the future, the very, very near future. In our words, let me put it this way. Just as this nation comes apart and is destroyed, God is going to call together a bunch of people probably a few thousand, seven, twelve, I don't know, about ten percent of those were converted in worldwide. And he is going to have them set up a millennial microcosm, a small part of what the millennium will be. This is something we never understood until we began to understand these prophecies. I don't know how long it will last. I'm beginning to think maybe three and a half years before the Great Tribulation starts. Three and a half years we may have, and this may tie in very well with Daniel and the story there of the interruption, Messiah being cut off and so on. I'm not going to get into that today, but I think that it may not just be something that was truncated in history and happens again at the end. Yes, there may be that application, but it may very well be that we have a seven-year period here at the end, 
in which this little millennial setting, this little Garden of Eden, if you will, will exist as an example to the rest of the world. The two witnesses work first with the church. It's very clear in Zechariah 4 that they are to feed the church, all seven churches, and that they are to build towns without walls that God will put a wall of fire around to protect, and that each man will have his own vine and fig tree. These are millennial conditions in a premillennial time setting. How can God destroy through Satan and the rulers of this world well over 90% of the population of earth without first showing what can be and what could be if man would walk by the fruit of the Spirit instead of the works of the flesh. He will show him then that there is a small group of people who have committed themselves and dedicated themselves to walking in the Spirit, doing things God's way according to His law and according to every word in this book. And that He will do wonders and miracles through them. The lame will walk, the deaf will hear, and the blind will see. And we'll all have dear legs to get around on instead of these old and ancient bad bones and joints that we've got today for the most part. God is going to make His will, His way known. God does nothing except He lets it be known through His servants, the prophets. And those two prophets are going to raise up a millennial setting that God Himself will protect and bless and the world can see. And they will hate it with a purple passion because they want to create their own millennium. They want to have their own world order and rule the world according to the ways of man through enslavement, death, and destruction, through feeding the elite and making slaves of the rest. And they really, really, really like that idea. And they're really, really, really busy right now bringing it about. And it isn't far off. It's becoming so much out in the open that they have to go through with it or forget it. They have a small window of opportunity. In fact, that small window of opportunity is all God is going to give them. And he says that even though it rises up and is great and powerful and world-ruling, it will have the feet of iron and miry clay and can't stand long because if your feet don't support you, you fall on your butt. And that's what's going to happen to this world-ruling empire that's coming up. So what God's people are going to be doing will stand exactly as the antithesis of what they plan. And therefore, they are programmed and cannot help but hate it. But God will show it. He's going to show them, even as their world-ruling empire rises, what He is going to do. And He's going to do it in a very open way. When Christ told us, your light must be on a candle and not be hid so that the whole world can see it, 
He meant exactly what he was talking about. It was not just a metaphor. Right here at the end, you and I can be included in a group of people. But God will have to protect in order for them to show what he can do and what he is about to do to the whole world. And when they hate it, and when they decide to come and destroy it, we will have to flee for our very lives to Zion and be protected there for three and a half years while the Gentiles walk about the earth during that time of the Gentiles. Then Christ will come and destroy their kingdoms and he will take his faithful bride to his Father in heaven and while the day of the Lord happens on the earth after the tribulation, as Matthew makes very clear, we will have a honeymoon with Christ and come back at the end of that year of no war and no work, getting to know our mate, and return with him, his vesture dipped in blood with ten thousands of his saints, and set up a world-ruling millennial empire just like that which was set up just prior to the end of this age. There's a little bubble and then a big bubble, if you will, of the millennium. I hope we have enough understanding and background now from all the prophecies to actually grasp this and what God is going to do. And the incredible opportunity is here that will be available to come and build in the temple of God and to make something far more glorious than what we experienced in Worldwide Church of God. has to happen. We're going to have to have outside help from a Cyrus who is unconverted. But God makes it very clear in an end-time prophecy in Isaiah 44 and 45 that that indeed will happen. So Cyrus, it says, will call on them to build the house at Jerusalem. He understands it has to be done. And he will provide the wherewithal, the authority, and so on to do it. It has to be done by true Christians because they went through their genealogies in Ezra 2 and set aside those who could not prove that they ought to be there. And then it's sorted out again a little later on. So they came and kept the Feast of Trumpets, then they kept the Feast of Tabernacles in uh, the story here in uh, Ezra 3 and got on with the work of the temple. And that there were ancient men there that had seen it destroyed 70 years before who would see it again. And Zerubbabel and Joshua in chapter 4 verse 3 turned away those who had been enemies and now began to cleave to them with flatteries and say, well, we want to help you. And they said, no, this is something for God's own people to do, not for others to do. We have to be converted to build a spiritual temple. And if God chooses that we also have to build a physical temple, then it will also be built by those who have been properly building the spiritual temple. Understand that the Jews, the physical Jews, have nothing to do with this. If they build one in that old city of Jerusalem over there, it will mean nothing spiritually. The world might attach value to it, but God does not. 
We should understand that by now about the Jews. Christ said when he was here that they were a generation of vipers, a bed of snakes. He said they did not worship the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said they worshiped the devil. Your father, the devil. How clear can you get? And it hasn't gotten better since. It's gotten worse. They don't keep God's holy days properly, and they certainly don't keep them when they ought to be kept. And they have the traditions of men, not the word of God. And they've rejected Messiah himself, who told them they were snakes. And he told them, as was quoted recently by someone else, you will not see me again until you accept those whom I sent. Who did he send? Non-Jews who had become spiritual Jews. James, Peter, John, Paul, Timothy, on and on it goes, the New Testament church, which they rejected. And they rejected the true church at the end as well. So God will have nothing to do with them until they accept the true spiritual Jews and Christ himself, the spiritual Jew. So any work of any consequence, of any importance to God that is to be done, has to be done by the truly converted people of God. That's what it has to be done by. That makes us candidates as we become more and more truly converted, as we become more and more transformed from this world and depart from it, as we've been told so many times to do, so that we don't look like it, smell like it, act like it, or anything else. The only way the world will hate us is if they see a difference between us and them. If they can't see a difference in us, they won't hate us. The world loves its own. We are to have no fellowship with the world. Very clear. Who was that? Nelson or, or uh, was it Terry? Somebody started quoting the verse after that this morning. Or Gordon, whoever it was. But the verse right before what they started reading said, we're to have no fellowship with the world. You know, sometimes we just, we have trouble understanding why we aren't supposed to have lots of friends out in the world or how our young people shouldn't be dating in the world or being with people in the world as their friends. Because God says it. That's why. We don't have to apologize for that. I recently told some people what they needed to be doing. And someone apologized for me for what I said. I meant exactly what I said, and I didn't need an apology for it. God will not be mocked. And if we think we can be hypocrites and dress one way here and go to town and do it entirely differently and look like the world, they'll think we're some of their own. Are we in it? 
or not? Are we here to do what's right or not? Will we come out of this world and not look like it and act like it and talk like it or not? Do you young people want to be protected through this horror that is about to descend? You'd better be obedient to your parents, and you better get your word of God out and see what it says. I can read it to you, but that's just the minister. And you may want to go do what you want to do anyway. There's the door. Go for it if you feel you must. There's the door. It isn't locked. It's against fire code. There is undescribable, indescribable horror about to come. And we're seeing the cracks that are bringing it on. It's time to decide. Am I going to really work it going God's way and being protected through this, or am I going to drift along and be caught by what is about to happen? We're in serious times. I'm not talking just the young people, I'm talking to all of us. It's time for hypocrisy to end. It's time to put on the garments of righteousness and become like God. I always look forward to the time of the millennium, and I still do. But now, in addition to that, I'm looking at an intermediary goal of being a part of that little microcosmic millennia that God is going to create to show his works and his people to the world before he gives them their final warning. It might be that we have about three and a half years for that to be. I don't know that I can prove the three and a half years at this point, but it seems to make sense and it may fit Daniel very well. I want to go back and review that again. A lot of theories in Daniel, but it hasn't all been understood. And I believe that the spiritual Jerusalem is the one that will be attacked and destroyed in these villages without walls that God is going to build in the desert, the wilderness, and the mountains, or what God, which what the world is going to want to destroy. It won't have anything to do with that city of Jerusalem in the Middle East. God's people aren't there, and they're not going to be there. God has not called people over there. He's called them here. This is where the spiritual Jews are in America, the United States and Canada, some in England, some around the world, but mostly here. And here is where God raised up the end-time work in Pasadena and the Southwest. And I do believe he is going to raise up the towns without walls again in the American Southwest. That's where you find the deserts, the wilderness, the mountains combined. And that's where God started his end-time work, the southwest, and I believe that's where he's going to finish it. It says they will come from the east and the north to the west. And this country is central to those prophecies. This country is central to the end-time prophecies, all of them. Herbert Armstrong understood that. He understood we were the leading nation of Israel, and that the destruction would come on this nation. Well, what counts in the end is spiritual Israel, and most of it 
high majority of it is in the United States of America and Canada. 90 plus percent. This is where God is going to do his work. This is where the real Zion is, and I'm beginning to think that it may be where the real Jerusalem originally was. We have pretty strong evidence that has not yet been proved. But there is so much that goes into this and what God is doing that at this point I'd almost be surprised if it turns out not to be true. Because he's already showed us that this area is very, very important. Okay? Chapter 5, Haggai and Zechariah showed up of Ezra. I was going to talk about Ezra today, and what time is it? Oh, boy. Haggai and Zechariah showed up and helped, and then rose up Zerubbabel and Joshua and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. There was a period of time when it ceased, just in the chapter above. Then they questioned who had told them to do this and who were they. Uh, and they answered, eight, verse 8, respectfully, Be it known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the house of the great God, which is built with great stones and timbers laid in the walls, and this work goes fast on and prospers. Oh, this, they went to the king. This was the enemy's uh, who said that it prospers in their hands. Then asked we those elders and said to them, Who commanded you to build, these, to build this house and to make up these walls? Did uh, the state, did the federal government, did the Planning and Zoning Commission give you permits? How are you doing this? And thus they returned us answer saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and build the house that was built these many years ago, which a great king of Israel built it and set up. There's your answer. By what authority will we do the things that God wants done? Not by the authority of the federal government, not by the authority of the state or the county, but by the power of God. And it will be against everything that the world government and all governments in this world will want done. They will do everything they can to stop it. And maybe they'll hold it up for a while. But it will be done. Not by might, not by strength, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Eternal. That's how it's going to be done. Will there be faith on earth when Christ returns? It is impossible to please Him without faith. God is going to provide a faithful remnant who will walk by faith and will be willing to stand against the world government, the federal government, the state government, the county government, and the local government. And they will build a microcosmic Jerusalem and God will protect it. And it will be done through the auspices of the great God. And these people were somewhat humbled by what they were doing. We're the servants of God who builded this through David, through Solomon. But after that our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried the people away into Babylon. Read Zechariah 5, about the two unclean birds 
probably both named Tkach. Maybe one was named Raider, I don't know. Who took the church of God, slammed lead into its mouth so that it could not speak anymore, and carried it off into Babylon and set it on its own base, not God's base in Babylon. The church of God, as Ezekiel 17, has shrunk and withered on the vine. Herbert Armstrong is dead and Joe Koch is dead in the same area where Herbert Armstrong died, fulfilling that riddle and that parable of Ezekiel 17. And God is about to take a small twig from the top of the cedar and plant it in the desert. And in a dry and thirsty, hot, unbearable land, God is going to build a Garden of Eden and a Garden of God. And the garden, and the, ro- and the, garden, the desert is going to bloom as a rose before the millennium ever arrives in a small area for a short time as a light to the world. Then it is going to be crushed by the new world order. Satan will be cast down, Revelation 12. And the first thing he is going to do, first order of business, is to come and destroy the Garden of Eden. Isn't that what he did originally? Isn't there a pattern there? When God set up a Garden of Eden and placed two people in it, Satan destroyed it as fast as he possibly could. All things happen over and over. There is always a pattern in the past for the future. And when God establishes a very small Garden of Eden again here in the end time, Satan is going to come and crush it. And we'd better pray. We be accounted worthy to escape when that occurs. And not even go back in our house after everything because they want to kill every last one of us. And Satan hates the light. That's why he has to destroy it. He will set up the abomination in Jerusalem without walls, those towns where God's righteous people have been residing. He doesn't want that city in the Middle East, destroyed necessarily. It's full of godless Muslims, godless Jews, and godless Protestants. It is, as Revelation 11 calls it, Sodom and Egypt. Now there's a spiritual recommendation for you. Why would Satan want to destroy Sodom and Egypt? No, he's going to come after the people of God. Now, he wants all mankind destroyed, yes. But he has that Jerusalem in the palm of his hand today. He wants to destroy you and me. And whoever will be faithful to God is who he wants to get rid of, the spiritual Jews. We've been captive in Babylon for... 70 years in this end-time church, right in the palm of its hand, keeping the Sabbath, keeping the holy days, but imbibing of the world. And it's had us in its clutches. Now I keep preaching. We've got to be separating ourselves from it. 
from the system, from the culture, the satanic culture. But even for people who understand, like you and me, it is so difficult, isn't it, to change our entire way of thinking and to think like God thinks instead of like this world thinks. We're part of the American dream. We grew up with apple pie, Chevrolet, baseball, and everything that is America. And we didn't realize, and most Americans don't today, and neither does most of the church, that God looks down upon this nation as one of the most abominable things he has ever seen in his life. He looks at it the same way he did Sodom and Gomorrah. He looks at it the same way he did the world before the Noatian deluge. And as the wife of Billy Graham said famously, if God doesn't do something soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I love that quote. We are called, this end time, to do a very, very special job. We are not special. God has a special job for those who will submit to him. He's looking for a submissive bride. He's looking for people who are willing to do things his way and bring peace to a small portion of the world as an example to that world. Anyway, Cyrus made a decree to build a house of God, and they said that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it, was there to re they were there to rebuild. I'll pick it up then. I'm not, I don't have time to get into 16, so let's finish 15, go over this a little bit more, verse 13 of chapter 5 of Ezra. They told the story, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon, the same king Cyrus made a decree to build this house of God. And the vessels also of gold and silver of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought them into the temple of Babylon, Babylon, those did Cyrus the king take out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, which is Persian for Zerubbabel, whom he had made governor. So the prophecy of a Cyrus at the end time in Isaiah 44 and 45 also lists the things the hidden things of God. I believe they're going to come to light. I've always thought, throughout my life really, that at some point God surely must show who he is by having Noah's Ark show up or the Ark of the Covenant or uh, the chariot wheels in the Red Sea or whatever. The things that the Bible talks about probably would show up at the end time, whether God created earthquakes or whatever he had to do to make them appear or have somebody find them to show that he is God. There have been rumors for years and years about Noah's Ark and unconfirmed sightings, and it's hard to get in there because of the political situation and on and on. Then there's a guy that says he found the chariot wheels over in the Gulf of Aqaba, I think it was, instead of the Red Sea, and all of that story. But nothing has come out in a way that proves God is God that is an undeniable fact. Now, it's an uphill battle. 
because recently they found what they say were the coffins of Christ and of Mary and Mary Magdalene and all these biblical people, and I scoff because I don't believe it. And I don't believe Christ married Mary Magdalene. I don't believe he had kids. And I don't believe that the order of people today are related to it. It just doesn't fit the Bible at all. But God himself is going to show some things. And I'm not just talking about something we might be doing or something somebody's trying to show us. I'm talking about Scripture that says it will happen. Whether it's the guy we're talking with now or not, I don't know, frankly. But if it's not, it's going to be somebody else because the Scripture cannot be broken. It will happen. And I want to be part of it, don't you? And that Cyrus said to Zerubbabel, Take these vessels, go, carry them into the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be builded in his place. Isn't that what God tells us to do in the book of Haggai? Who will come and build in the house of God instead of trying to seek wealth in this material world, and it's all going away through inflation and a bag with holes in it? He wants a righteous people to come, and he is going to stir them from the farthest, furthest reaches of this earth and come from afar to build his temple. No, the job now is not to preach the gospel around the world as a witness, as most of the churches believe. The job now is to build the temple of God and to show that God is God. And then when the world rejects that and destroys it, the two witnesses will go out and give the final warning, and the gospel will be preached around the world as a witness, and then the end shall come. Herbert Armstrong did not fulfill Matthew 24, 14. He fulfilled Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go and bring baptized converts. But he preached what he preached, and he died, and 21 years later, the end has not come. That was not his job. His job was to call many. Now few are being chosen and will be stirred to action and come and build the temple of God. Then the two witnesses will preach for three and a half years. And when they are killed in the streets of Jerusalem, three and a half days later, the end of this age will come. When they are resurrected to life, along with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all the other first fruits of the early New Testament and the Latter-day Church and come back with Christ to rule the world in peace and safety and love and all those things that every human being has always desired to have but always went about getting the wrong way and it has always ended in broken empires, broken families, broken lives, broken emotions, and death because we use the wrong method. God is looking for a people who will adopt His methods, do it His way, and walk in the Spirit, and He will use them.
very shortly, the next act of the church, beyond being broken apart completely, but the first positive act will to be build, town, build towns without walls that God will protect and build a little millennium which Satan will destroy probably a few years later. And then God will destroy Satan's world government and set up his millennium. So we are here today, the first day of this Feast of Tabernacles, to typify both the thousand-year reign of Christ, but also a dry run of seven, yes, eight days, in which we live together in love and joy and peace and don't give or take offense, as I said last night. But where we learn to live together peacefully and love one another and show what the Spirit of God can do. Therefore, we need to be praying during this feast that God be with us, that God lead us by His Spirit, that He help each and every one of us to have the mind of Christ. Because if we don't, we'll walk by the flesh and we'll be selfish and we'll hurt instead of help others because that's the works of the flesh. We're here to live and walk in the Spirit this period of time. Pray that we're able to overcome human tendencies and human nature and do it God's way. He's looking for people to do it His way. It's a type of the millennium, and it's a type of the little millennium just ahead. I want to be here these eight days. I want to be with God's people these eight days, and I want to fellowship together and have a wonderful time and do it God's way. And brethren, I really want to be a part of what God does right here at the end to show the world who He is even though they're going to hate us if we're part of it. And I want to still be around when he shakes the heavens and the earth that those things which cannot be shaken will remain. Let's keep that in mind as we live through these days.